Hey, good morning. It's so good to be here with you guys. We are in the middle of our series, Analog Christian. And if you've been here, you know this has been kind of a more practical series than what we typically do here. Um, so we're still, you know, of course, we're talking about theology and the Bible, but it's more geared toward a really practical look at how we as Christians can incorporate technology into our lives in a healthy and appropriate way that allows us to, to live with wisdom and obedience to God. We're going to continue that today, but before we do that, I wanted to um, give you guys kind of an announcement about something coming up and also a potential opportunity for you to join with us in something. As many of you know, most of you know, um, in addition to teaching here, I'm also the missions pastor. And so I get the privilege of, of managing all of our partnerships with different nonprofit organizations overseas. One of those is an incredible organization in Nigeria called the West Africa Center for Missions. Wonderful Nigerian-run organization that we have worked with for 10-plus years at this point. They do tons of incredible stuff. They have a, a nonprofit hospital that's very influential in the area. They have a theological seminary, a church. They do medical outreaches to villages and tons of other stuff. But, but one of the things that they do yearly is put on a massive pastor's conference for the whole region of West Africa that they're a part of. And when I say a pastor's conference, I just want to make sure you know what I'm talking about because a pastor's conference can be 20 people or 100 people. This conference often has over 1,000 pastors in attendance from all over the region of West Africa that they're in. And it's a week-long, incredibly encouraging to the church in that area, has a really big impact on the lives of the pastors. I've been there several times, other pastors from the church have. And um, as tensions and instability in that region increase, they remain faithful. And they keep saying, we're doing the conference again this year. We're doing the conference again this year. And so we are, first of all, just wanting you guys to know that that is happening so you can be in prayer for it. As that region becomes less stable, it's a, it's a scarier thing every time. Um, so be in prayer for them. And then also just so that you guys know that when you are giving faithfully to this church, you're enabling us to do stuff like support this conference year after year. And it's amazing what they can do with resources in that part of the world. I mean, we're talking a 1,000 pastors being housed and fed and taught for a week, and it costs us just around $20,000 to do that every year. And the reason we're able to do that is because you guys are faithful and generous in your giving to this church. Now, another thing we do in conjunction with that conference, some of you guys will remember this from years past, is we like to buy motorcycles. That's a picture of me being impressed by some motorcycles in Nigeria a number of years ago. And the way this works is we just give them the funds to purchase some motorcycles, and they choose some like very worthy gospel preaching local village pastors to give them to, no strings attached. And you can't fathom the impact this makes on the life and ministry of a local rural pastor in Nigeria. So these, this year, um, the motorcycles are going to cost about $1,100 a piece. South Valley, we've committed from our budget that we're going to, um, in, in addition to paying for the conference, we're going to give them the funds to buy at least 10 motorcycles, but we wanted to just extend the offer to you that if you feel called, led to contribute in some way, you could purchase a motorcycle for a pastor over there for 1100 bucks, or you could contribute any smaller amount than that or larger amount than that toward the purchasing of these motorcycles. We're going to send the money soon, so that means if you want to participate in that, make sure you do it in the next week, week and a half. You can do that by writing Nigeria Motorcycles on the check um, in the memo area, or if you give online, there's a, a, there'll be a special option in the drop-down menu that'll say Nigeria Motorcycles. It'll be up there for about a week. So again, incredible thing. The main thing we want is for you guys to know these kinds of things are happening regularly. Our church is in an incredible position to have an impact with the resources that we have, and it's because of, of you guys being faithful and generous over the years. Now, talking about analog Christian and, and thinking about the developing world, one of the kind of 
incredible privileges that I've had working in this position has been to travel over and over again to different developing countries, places like Nigeria, Tanzania, Haiti, Cambodia, and many others. And one thing that is an absolute dramatic standout feature of all of those environments when you're in them, those of you who've traveled to places like this will, will agree with me, and especially the more rural you get, the more true this is. It's the sense of deep, profound community in these places. Smaller communities of people and the bond that they share with each other. One of my, my earliest memories from this kind of missions work was 10 plus years ago, my first time going to Tanzania, we put on a kids camp and, and they had you know, probably around 100 kids come out to this camp and many of them didn't know each other. It's like they're meeting for the first time in this environment. And we did our program for them. We had games and a story and all that kind of stuff. And then at the end of the day, we had a, a, some time to kill before bedtime. And so some of the local volunteers just brought out a speaker and started playing music. And all 100 plus of these kids who don't even really know each other just instantly started dancing together. And they, I mean, they danced with each other for hour and a half, two hours. And I was just watching them in awe. And not just little kids, because you might be able to get little kids to dance, you know, in our culture. But I'm talking 11, 12, 13, you can't make me dance if you threaten my life, aged kids. And I just watched 100 Tanzanian kids smile, laugh, and dance together for hours. And I remember thinking, what happened in our world that we don't have this? There's a picture that my wife took, one of my favorite pictures my wife's ever taken, of a similar night in Tanzania. This is from a few years later. But it captures that spirit of, of community and connection and a certain lack of distractedness and insecurity that you see there. And it's not just the kids. If you're out in these environments, you know, it's, it, when the evening starts to come on and the sun is setting and it gets cool, you'll just watch the entire community come out of their houses and like sit down in front yards and be talking and laughing and telling stories together. Driving down the road, you'll see three, four, five people all walking together, talking and laughing. There's just the sense that the community is connected. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. One of them, very much related to the series, is that they don't have the same distractions we do because of many of the technological advances we have here. Another part of it is just that when you need your neighbor, you know your neighbor. When your survival might depend on the person who lives next to you, you're going to know their name and their kids' names. And so something that's happened in our world is that as technology has increased and as our cultural value for independence and autonomy has increased, that independence has bled over into isolation. And I want to be really clear about something because it's very easy to misunderstand this. I'm not in any way trying to romanticize poverty or make it seem like, oh man, I wish all of us could live in abject poverty so we'd all have strong communities. That's not what I'm saying. I actually hate it when, when that's what's portrayed. It's never that simple. And of course, the advantages we have, many of them are incredible blessings that, that, that provide incredible benefits for our lives. But what I am saying is that sometimes the disadvantages that a given culture has give rise to certain strengths. And conversely, sometimes the advantages that a culture like ours has gives rise to certain weaknesses. And one that I have observed time and time again is that we don't know our neighbors. We're not connected to our communities. And when you put on music, 100 kids here won't all dance together. And so thinking about analog community, which is what our focus is today. We've talked about the family in the first week. We talked about the church in the second week. And today we're talking about the Christian's connection to their broader community. 
Each week, we've looked at this biblical concept of chokmah. That's the word in Hebrew that's translated wisdom in the Old Testament. And it means something very similar to wisdom, but, but a lot broader. We've talked about it every week, so I'm going to be brief. But just, just as a reminder, when we say wisdom in our culture, that word means something like the knowledge gained from practical experience. So if we say someone is wise, we don't mean they're smart. We mean they've actually lived life and have had certain experiences that allow them to use their knowledge in a particularly applicable way. It's about kind of learned experience. That's part of Hokmah, but a small part. When the biblical authors talk about Hokmah, what they mean is that God has designed the world in a certain way, according to certain patterns and designs. And that the wise person, the person with Hokmah, is the person who understands that pattern and can live their life in accordance with it. So the idea is God designed the world in a certain way. You live your life in alignment with that pattern to the best of your ability. And what will happen most of the time is that your life will flourish. Your family will flourish. Your community and the world will flourish. Now, of course, we live in a fallen world. The biblical authors understand that. That's why the Bible has Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Because anything can happen and you can live wisely and your life may not go awesome. But in general, the principles of wisdom say if you can discern through God's revelation how you ought to live according to the design God has made us with, your life will flourish and your family and your community will as well. And so you can see why this is so important when it comes to technology because the Bible doesn't always give a direct teaching about something, especially stuff like technology, right? There's no verse with Paul saying, thou shalt not have a TikTok account, right? I'm fully convinced he would have written that if he was right, you know, at least that one, if not all of them. And so we have to apply wisdom. We have to say, okay, well, what does the Bible teach us about how humans are designed to live, how Christians ought to relate to the world around them? And in light of that, how do we interact with this technology? And when it comes to community, it's amazing. Paul actually is really direct about this. In the book, in the letter actually that he wrote to the Colossian church, he said, walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, this is the New Testament, so Paul's writing in Greek, not in Hebrew. And so when he says wisdom, he doesn't use the word hokmah, he uses the Greek word sophia. But what you need to know is, is when someone like Paul, who is a rabbinically trained Jewish man, he knows the Torah inside and out, he's lived it. When he says wisdom, it does not matter what language he speaks. He means chokmah. He means the Jewish conception of wisdom, especially in this phrase, walk in wisdom. For the Jewish people, the idea of how you walked was a, a really common metaphor for how you live the entirety of your life. So to walk in wisdom means the way you live your life, the manner in which you relate, in this case, toward outsiders, by which he means those who are not yet Christians. How you live your life toward them should be characterized by wisdom. Now, the challenging thing for us in the modern world is how do you do that in a culture that is so isolated by technology? How do you have gracious speech that's seasoned with salt in a world where people don't even really talk to each other anymore? We are increasingly disembodied, disengaged, and disconnected from one another. And these things build on each other. How many of you have, I'll say it the really generous way first, how many of you have observed others, not yourself, in a restaurant or in a park or some out, outside setting where they're together with their friends and their family, and they're all together, like their bodies are close to each other, but each person in the group is like this. You're all like, we've seen other people do that for sure. I've never participated in such a thing, but man, it seems like the kind of thing that would happen. 
We all know what it feels like to, to be this way, right? Or say you're watching TV with your spouse or a loved one or just a friend, and you're already doing something that's like a passive technology-mediated activity, and then you realize, like, we're not even watching TV because we're both on our phones. We're both looking at our iPads, or maybe both. You've got, like, one thing on here and one thing. We are disembodied. There's a pastor in Australia who, who describes it as excarnation, which I think is really powerful. Incarnation means to put on flesh. That's what Jesus does when he assumes a human nature. But he says, we in the modern world, we are increasingly excarnating. We're taking ourselves out of the physical body and living our lives in a disembodied way. And as a result, we don't interact with or know our neighbors. And that leads to this profound sense of disengagement. You don't know the people in your community. You don't know what's going on with them. You're not available to help because you don't even know what they need. Instead, everything is mediated through social media, the news, etc. Your understanding of your neighbors is all coming to you through those mediums. And let me tell you, you know this already. If everything you know about your friends and your neighbors comes to you through social media and the news, let me ask you, is it accurate? You actually know those people? Of course not. This also bleeds into how we try to help even with like issues and things we care about. If you, you might like learn about, you know, that there's a, a natural disaster somewhere or there's, you're learning for the first time about the plight of people stuck in human trafficking or the water crisis and you want to help. How do people typically help in the modern world? You can help in a really easy way by liking and retweeting and sharing a post, right? There's a word for that in the modern world. It's a great word. This is my gift to you today. They call that slacktivism. <laughs> Slacker activism. It creates the feeling of having helped, right? Without having actually done something. If there was social media in the world of Lord of the Rings, this might have been what happened. Aragorn rushes in. The beacons are lit. Gondor calls for aid. And Theoden says, send Gondor our thoughts and prayers and change our official Facebook page's profile picture to one with the Gondorian flag filter, right? <laughs> Gondor will answer with posts. Now, I, I want to be, be really clear about that. First of all, that's not meant to target any particular movement. Um, it's also not meant to say that that's automatically a bad thing. It's not bad to say what you think about something. That's, that's what that is, to voice your opinion online. That's what that means. If you put a flag filter on your, on your screen to support a certain thing that's happening, or if you repost an article from International Justice Mission about the problem of human trafficking, that's a good thing. You're saying, I care about this, but that's what you're doing saying you care about it. And if it creates in you a sense of having actually done something to help, now it's a danger. Do you see what I'm saying? And that's what happens. We're disengaged from our community and we have these ways of feeling like we're doing something to contribute without having actually done anything. And the result of all of this mixed together is this profound sense of isolation and disconnection that happens as a result. The, the internet and social media creates a feeling of community but we're more isolated than ever. And the statistics bear this out. Currently, 52% of Americans feel lonely. That's more than half. That means more people in our country feel lonely than don't feel lonely. Now, it sounds silly to say it that obviously, but think about that for a second. Now, for many of us, we have to be honest and go like, yeah, that's, I believe that because I'm lonely, right? But for some of us, this is shocking. 47% feel that their relationships are not meaningful. Um, there's a, a, a stat associated with this that's even more upsetting to me, which is that 58%, 58% of people believe that not one person knows them well. Think about that. 
And again, these stats are true. That means that in this room, 58% of you could agree with that. Yeah, they, they see me online. They might see a certain portrayal of what I'd like people to think I'm like, but do they actually know me? Who in our lives actually knows us well? 57% of people eat all of their meals alone. Um, and that, the interesting thing about that stat, the tragic thing about that stat is that that's not just single people. That actually applies across the board. So single people and people in families, 57% are eating all of their meals alone. Now, if you control for age, that top stat becomes much worse. Gen Z and millennials, 73% feel lonely. And just so you know, that's a big chunk of people. That's people starting at about my age. I'm like prime millennial age, so I'm you know, mid-30s. Anybody mid-30s and below, 73% feel lonely. Any thought that maybe that 21% boost might have something to do with the internet, with social media, technology? Now, this is the least surprising stat I'll share with you. Social media doesn't help with loneliness. And that's not just me saying that, even though everybody knows it. They always have to like, go do like, a bunch of studies and stuff to prove what everybody knows intuitively. But there are some really crazy, I went totally down the rabbit hole of studying this week, some of the, the studies that are out on this. One, the one that stood out to me the most was research that found that for every 10% of your kind of social media interactions that are negative, your feeling of loneliness increases by 13%. So if you have a negative interaction, 10%, you'll get a 13% increase in loneliness. Now, that's not surprising. Here's what's surprising and really important. There was no counteracting effect the other direction. Meaning, positive so interactions on social media did not make people feel less lonely. Here's the simple non-stats guy, which I clearly am. Anybody in here who's a statistician is like, this guy is butchering whatever study he read, probably. Here's what you need to know. If you're lonely, Social media makes it worse, but it also doesn't make it better. And I mean that literally. It'll make you feel more lonely, and it won't help you feel less lonely. You might get like a second of dopamine that makes you feel like something happened, like you might feel good for a minute, but what happens when you reflect on it? The author of Ecclesiastes talks about this. He talks about how you, you, you might experience pleasure in a moment, but when you think about it later, you realize it's all empty. Social media doesn't help. And so this is our world, you guys. We have to reckon with this. People around us are lonely. They don't feel known by anyone. And that's a dark picture. And in the midst of that dark picture, you have Jesus giving us this direct command in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When I think about this verse, in light of the loneliness of our current world, you almost can picture like this, you know, a sea of blackness with these little rectangles of light and all these individual people all feeling lonely and having fake connections to community. And Jesus is calling the church to be like Jerusalem. That's what that audience would have thought of. A city on a hill, this beacon of light in the midst of the darkness saying, here is where community can be found. And I don't mean the church building. I mean Christians, the community of Christians in the world. A city on a hill, a light that's up on a stand so everyone can see, giving light to everything around it. That's what we're called to do. J. Kim in his book, Analog Church, um, this is obviously a book that had a significant influence on this series. It's a friend of our church, personal friend of Isaac's. 
He said this, the need exists because the digital age has disconnected and detached us from one another in ways completely unique to our current moment in history. True analog community is what the world is hungry for, whether they know it or not. And so for all of us, this is a call to action that we need to live embodied lives that are actually connecting to the community around us. And so we're going to do what we've done every week, which is just give a list of practical ideas for how we can actually start to implement some of this in our lives. And I want to say up front, for me personally, this is a very convicting and challenging topic because I'm not good at any of the stuff I'm about to put on here, maybe a couple of them. But in general, this is a struggle for me to connect to my community, to my neighbors, and actually do the kinds of things we're about to talk about. So there's no finger pointing happening this morning. This is for all of us. And I want to just encourage you to, to practice wisdom as we receive the things on this list and think about what in my life could use some shaping and reconnecting with the people around me. So the first one is simple, know your neighbors. We had a pastor preach here a number of years ago, Justin Anderson, he's a great guy, and he, he said something that stuck with me. He talked about Jesus' command that we, to love your neighbor, and he said, you know, there's lots of scholarly debate about exactly who your neighbor might be, you know, how far does that extend, but probably it at least includes your actual neighbors. <laughs> and he said that, and it actually struck me, because at the time I realized, I was living in a different place, I realized I, don't, I actually don't know anything about the person who lives next door to me. So I want to encourage you, start there. Do you know your actual neighbors? Our world encourages such kind of isolation and autonomy and independence that we can like drive right into the garage and shut the garage door and go into the house and not even see a neighbor. So I want to encourage you, if that's you, if you realize, I actually don't know the people in my neighborhood, slowly but surely start going out of your way, investing the time necessary to know them. Usually that means you're in a hurry because we're all in a hurry and you realize your neighbor's outside working on his yard as you're trying to leave or getting home, take five or 10 minutes just to go over and say hi, introduce yourself. Someone new moves to the neighborhood, go introduce yourself to them, get to know them. This is something that my wife is better at than I am. Um, she regularly will kind of give baked goods to our immediate neighbors with a little note on there, just kind of letting them know who we are and that we, we care about them. Um, she does this in particular kind of around holidays. This is, this is a, a way that you can apply this. Her and my kids will, will bake cookies or something and then put a note on it and put it on the doorstep. And it's not like an opportunity for intense evangelism. Like she doesn't take the note out and say like, repent and believe the gospel for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, lest ye be separated from God from all eternity. Like it's, it's literally, it'll be like, happy Easter, he is risen from the Whitakers. And then my neighbors, this is the way the technology works. I know that my neighbors on their ring camera see my three-year-old with a box of cookies like go up and set it on the porch. You know what I mean? And that's powerful. It's not nothing. It's their baby steps towards actually knowing these people. And then when that neighbor, and this has actually happened in our lives. I've witnessed it. When our neighbors see my kids, they say hi to them. They know their names because we give them Christmas cards and stuff like that. So just get to know them. Now, beyond your literal neighbors, I would expand this to include anyone who you might regularly see. So that could be your regular barista at the coffee shop. That could be the person who checks your groceries at the grocery store, your barber, whatever it is. Take the time to just, and again, you don't have to be all crazy, but just say hi, learn their names, ask how their week is going. You will be surprised over time how well you might get to know those people. And here's what this requires of you. This is the hardest part. It requires you to literally and metaphorically take out your headphones. You know what I mean? And this is a word for me more than probably anyone else in the room. I like my headphones. You know why? They do two things for me. They let me listen to music, number one, and they make it so people don't talk to me. 
Number two. It's my favorite thing about headphones. It's the universal leave me alone symbol, right? We have to take our headphones out. And I mean that literally and metaphorically. You can go to the automatic checkout thing, what I like to do, or you can get in the same line with the same grocer every time and just have a brief positive interaction with that person. So think about this with, again, your barista, the person who does your hair, and, and you might be surprised over time the development of a relationship in those contexts. The second step is for the people who you have a, a closer connection to already. This is your friends and your family. And this is just a simple encouragement to invest. And I, I literally mean that word. Invest your time and energy into those relationships. This is something I'm particularly bad at as well. I kind of tend to just interact with the people that I see regularly and forget to check in on other friends and, and to know what, what's going on in their lives and support them. So whatever it takes for you to add it into your life to regularly be connecting with the people in your life who need you. 58% um, of people believe no one knows them well. That's, this is how we combat that. So one thing, I'm actually, I've been thinking about this this week because this is convicting to me and like, I'm gonna, this is a suggestion that you might take as well if you're like me and you have a hard time with this. Because it's not intuitive or natural to me, I'm gonna put it in my calendar regularly to just spend five or 10 minutes thinking about who have I not talked to in a while? Who can I reach out to with a call or a text and see how they're doing? But this is how we combat the loneliness in our world is to actually know the people in our lives. And it's way, way harder than the online version because you can like someone's post and you can sort of feel like you know what's going on with someone. And you might know some the surface details of their lives. Oh, they moved. Oh, they had a kid. Oh, they got a dog. Like, but do you actually know what's going on in their lives? The only way we can do that is by investing our very precious time and energy into those relationships. The third one is it's related to the other two, of course, and it's to practice hospitality. 57% of people in our country eat alone all of their meals. There's incredibly low-hanging fruit in inviting a neighbor or a friend or an acquaintance to a meal. And it requires us, again, to metaphorically and literally maybe open up the kind of front doors and garage doors of our homes to welcome in other people to share what we have. And I don't just mean share the food we have, but share the, the family that we have and the love that we have within our families. To welcome that into that and to bring them in. And, and it doesn't have to just be inviting people over for dinner. That's kind of the most obvious example. I think things like what I already shared about my wife delivering cookies to the neighbors applies. I think if you're going to the park in your neighborhood and you have a neighbor who has kids, you go knock on the door and say, hey, we're going to the park. Do you wanna to come to the park with us? We're going to the beach, let's invite a friend. It's about letting people into that circle that in our culture we have, we have shut off. We have this weird... Um, it's hard to articulate this, but it's like we have this tiny little autonomous zone that we want no one inside of, and then this giant fake social connection that's all mediated by technology. And we have to close that gap somehow by allowing more people in to our lives to share our lives with us. Again, baby steps in this stuff, but think about what would it look like to think through this Thanksgiving? Who do we have in our lives that might not have a place to go that we could reach out to? Now what's gonna happen is uh, next week a bunch of you are gonna get dinner invitations and you're gonna know it's just because of the sermon. Um, so don't berate your friends if they're trying. If you get a dinner invite next week, don't say, you're just doing that because Sam said to do it. Actually, I mean, if you can do that if you want. That might be God calling you to challenge your friend. <laughs> just kidding. The fourth one, and this is a quick one, is, is offer to pray for people. This is one that I've actually seen in my own life bear a lot of fruit. You would be shocked 
by how many people will respond positively to an offer for prayer, even people who don't believe in God. And so it can be as simple as just telling them, hey, wow, I'll pray for that. Again, if, if you know this requires these other things to be in place, but if you know your barista and you find out they've got a challenge going on because you asked them how they're doing, just offer to pray. You'd be shocked, again, how many people will say yes. And if you're feeling courageous and if, you know, using your discernment, this feels appropriate, consider offering to pray for them right there on the spot. I actually have started doing that more and more, mostly because if I tell someone I'll pray for them and I don't do it right then, then I'm going to forget and now I'm a liar. So I try, I, I really, I, if I offer to pray for someone and the situation is appropriate, it feels socially like it's not too bizarre, I'll just say, hey, do you mind if I pray for you real quick, quick right now? And most people say yes. And here's the thing. Most of you are probably thinking, yeah, that's a pretty good way to like signal to that person that you're a Christian and like, Show them that you care about them and that you value them. That's all true. But here's the main thing, Christians. If you believe that you can communicate directly with the almighty creator and sustainer of the universe on behalf of that person, that's the main reason to offer to pray for them. Because God might just act on their behalf. And so it can't just be a fake like, oh, I, I prayed for them and now they know I'm a Christian. That's a good thing. That's a good side benefit. The main thing is you're praying for them and God will act. God listens to his people. And so we want to, to be people who are, are praying for those in our lives. And I've personally seen the impact of, of that when, when you pray for someone and good things happen. You know, it's not, I don't have, it's not like people are like running to me saying, oh, now I believe God is true. What must I do to be saved? But in general, there's a, an association with when people pray for me, it seems like something's actually happening. So I encourage you, offer to pray for people more. Be bold in that. The fifth one is give generously. I don't mean primarily um, giving to the church. That's, that's a given, frankly, for Christians. It's an assumption of the New Testament that members of a church are giving sacrificially to the church that they're a part of. I mean in the context of your community, that you want to be a person who's generous with your time and with your resources, both for your friends that you're close to and for your community. And for many of us, that might require like a restructuring even of our budget. Um, but for all of us, it requires rethinking the value of our time and our willingness to give it up. It can be something as simple as offering to help someone with a project they're doing. Again, you see your neighbors pulling weeds, you got a free hour. None of us have a free hour, right? You might have to sacrifice an hour to go offer. I pulled weeds all day yesterday, so that's top of mind because no one did that for me. Um, think about if you find out a neighbor is moving away. And you just go and say, hey, do you, you have enough help moving? I can get some friends, we could help you move. The good news is they'll probably say no and then you'll get the points for having offered but you won't have to actually do anything. Um, and then if they do, like if they say, yeah, that would be great. What an opportunity to like really put your time on display that man, I, I care about you, I'll help you move. That's like one of the deepest ways you can show your love for somebody. You know why? Because helping someone move is the absolute worst thing in the world, right? I, I, I don't remember where I saw this first, but I've, I've heard that the three levels of friendship are your regular acquaintances, people who will drive you to the airport, and people who will help you move, because it's just the worst. But again, I, I know I keep saying this, but think of that literally and metaphorically, that like, what would it mean for you to be available when people need something? That, hey, I've got, I actually have finances set aside for when someone in my circle has a sudden need, I can, I can bless them and help them in a real practical way. Not just saying in the slacktivist online way, hey, let me know if you need anything. 
But for real, I know someone's struggling, so I'm at the grocery store, I'll send a text and say, hey, I'm at the store, can I grab anything for you? I'm making dinner, I've got extra, can I bring some by for you guys so you don't have to cook tonight? Or if you're busy and that's not you, it's here's a DoorDash card so you guys can buy dinner tonight. Be thinking about ways you can actually bless those in your life. And in addition to that, when you think about the causes that you care about, things like human trafficking and the water crisis, don't just share your opinion about it online, nothing wrong with that, but go the extra step and say, how might God use me to help with this? Maybe it's donating money. Maybe there's an opportunity locally for you to, to vol volunteer your time. Number six is use technology with intention. And this is, is really important to me because we've been careful to say this every week, but we are not like aggressively anti-technology. That's not the point of the series. The series isn't to say like, smash your phone and throw away your TV. The, the point is how do you with wisdom put it in the place it belongs in your life and your family? And I actually think that when it comes to connecting with the broader community, there is tremendous potential because of things like social media if they're used well and in moderation. I mean, you can, because of things like Facebook and Instagram and others, you can stay connected with people who you otherwise would lose contact with. And you can kind of see what's going on with people's lives. You just have to go the extra step of thinking through how should I use this in a way that will actually create real life fruit. So that means that if you see something online and you get the indication maybe that somebody's struggling with something, you reach out to them. And like reach out to them for real. Remember again, people, people are lonely. People don't feel that they're known. And so if you get the sense that someone's struggling with some, something, send them a message, Call them, text them, just say, hey, I, I saw, you know, maybe something's going on. Is there anything I can do for you? Can, is it all right if I pray for you? Do you want to meet up and talk about whatever's going on? Find, find ways to leverage that connection for actual, real, embodied connection. The problem is it becomes a source of fake everything. You feel like you know people. You feel like you're helping. You feel like you know what's going on in the world. And all of it is fake. It's all fake. And so if you can use it for what it's actually good for, which is, hey, I got a general idea of what's going on with everybody I've ever known in my entire life, <laughs> but I'm gonna actually take the extra step when I see an opportunity to actually lean in and help someone in a real connected way. And the final one, and this one might seem weird on this list, is to love your fellow Christians. Um, and you might be thinking like, this entire sermon was about loving the non-Christian community around me, like loving the people in my life who aren't part of the church. Why does this belong on the list? And I'll let Jesus answer that question. Jesus says in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will the world know to whom you belong? What is your frontline way of representing your loyalty to Jesus as his disciple? He says, it's the way you love other Christians. Now, those of you who are online, how good of a job are Christians doing at this in public, on the internet? How good of a job do Christians do loving each other in a way that lets everyone know whose disciples they are? As somebody who regularly looks at Christian Twitter, I can tell you it's a nightmare out there. It's horrible. It's devastating to me personally, regularly. Now, should I quit Twitter? I don't I mean, I could, I could quit any time. It's fine, no problem. But in the meantime, you see in these places, these online places, right, Christians who are not practicing the love that will show who their loyalty is to. And so first and foremost, 
as Christians, you want people to know who your king is, you love your fellow Christian, online and in person. And I think the embodied love for your neighbor, for your Christian neighbor, is more important than anything you could do or say online. Now, Jesus goes a step beyond this two chapters after this. And these two verses are very rarely connected for some reason, but it's, it's the exact same point, except that Jesus is going to make it a command and then connect it directly to himself. He says in John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So stop there for a second. This is a direct command from Jesus. You can't take anything more seriously than you should take this. How should you treat your fellow Christians? Jesus says, I command you, love each other. That's enough. But then he draws this incredible connection. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. How do you love one another? As I have loved you. Let me ask you, how has Christ loved his church? Through dying for her. I mean, Jesus demonstrates his love, as he says, in the greatest way imaginable, by laying down his life for her. And so Christians, how do we love each other? How do we love the world? We look to the example of Jesus and we try to the best of our ability to imitate it. Now, most of us are not going to end up in a situation where we lay down our life literally for our fellow Christians, although that happens all over the world all the time. It's probably not going to happen to us. But every single day, every single week, every single month, you have opportunity after opportunity to, in small ways, embody the sacrificial love that Jesus demonstrates at the highest level. We can do that in smaller ways. And some of it's just the stuff we've talked about already, that you love in a way that sacrifices your sense of autonomy, that sacrifices some of the time that we are so prone to worship in our culture, sacrifice some of the money. Find ways to love that imitate the love of Jesus. And always, always, you know this, if you go to this church, you know we say this week after week, always from the basis of the safety and forgiveness that's found in Jesus' love for you. And so we're going to come to communion. And as we do, I want to invite you to reflect on the love of Jesus for you. Because Jesus goes to the cross to cancel your debt of sin, to defeat your greatest enemy, Satan and death, and to invite you into the family of God. And he says here, you want to love each other correctly? Well, how do you do it? the same way I loved you. And so as we do this, I want to encourage you, think first, those of you who are Christians, think first with gratitude and love of Jesus' great gift to you, that you are saved, your record of debt is canceled, nailed to the cross, you're forgiven, you have a place in the family of God because of what Jesus did for you. So we start there, and then we look to the world around us and say, Lord, help me to see in my world how I can imitate the kind of love that you have given to me on the cross in the smaller ways that you have brought before me. And as we do that, we can actually become the city on the hill in a place that desperately needs it. This world is lonely. What better need to meet than loneliness? To say there's a place, there's a people where your loneliness can come to an end but it's gonna require those of us who are rich in friendship, rich in love, to share with each other. And again, that's a call to me as much as it is to anyone else in the room. 
So let's remember the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins and let's seek to imitate it in our own lives. Amen?